audio zine from project-based media company DIY Dancer and mental health nonprofit OK Let's Unpack This. I'm your co-host Courtney Henry, and I'm Leo Zielinska, founder of OK Let's Unpack This, a dancer and mental health advocate based in Brooklyn, New York. Courtney and I have teamed up with DIY Dancer to edit and co-host this audio zine collectively and collaboratively bringing into the spotlight a collection of conversations, essays, and self-care moments all focused on dancer mental health. I'm super grateful for all the contributors and I'm humbled to be a part of this project with you, Courtney. And as I mentioned, my name is Courtney Henry and I am also so honored to be co-editing with such a talented group of women behind DIY Dancer Magazine. See the bigger picture. See. Zoom out. We're excited to share chapter three of the series with you. In this chapter, we'll be listening to Catherine Boland in conversation with the founders of Erase the Stigma, an arts organization using movement and dance to combat stigma surrounding mental health followed by an interlude by Morgan Barbara Williams. Finally, we'll be listening to Misa Lusician in conversation with Isla Clark and Maxi Canyon on trans and non-binary experiences within the dance field. Each episode, we'll be looking at mental health through a unique lens of our dance artist contributors. Some segments will be preceded by content warnings, just to make sure everyone can listen safely. Mental health resources will be listed at the end of each episode, as well as in the show notes at DIYDancer.com. Welcome back to Vulnerable Resilience. Please be advised that the following interview discusses conditions such as anxiety, depression, and schizoaffective disorder, and mentions the suicide of a loved one. Hi, I'm Nina Madsen-Puckett. I'm the founder of a new 501c3 mental health organization called Erase the Stigma Through Dance. I am a dancer and massage therapist choreographer based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hi, my name is Sipora Gerson-Miller, and I am a dancer. I'm a licensed psychotherapist in the state of Georgia and a certified yoga therapist, and I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Debbie Smith Berlin, and I'm on the board of directors of Erase the Stigma. I am a shamanic practitioner and accountant in Sperry, Oklahoma. Thank you all. I would love to hear how did Erase Through Dance get started and how did the mission evolve? So it started kind of at a out of a culmination of my own personal experience with a, a mental illness called schizoaffective disorder, uh, which I had in 2013. So characterized by hallucinations and delusions. And, you know, years later, I started feeling more comfortable speaking about my experience to others. Debbie Smith Berlin, who's a very close friend of mine, had many, many talks really throughout the years of my struggles with mental illness. And I brought to her kind of an idea that I had about some sort of a mental health organization that involved the art of dance. And I knew I didn't want it to be a dance company, but I wanted it to involve dance somehow. So over the course of about a year of discussion, kind of brainstorming between myself and Debbie, and then also myself and Laura Lee Dick, who is also on the board, we kind of organically figured out what we wanted the organization to be. And that was a platform to support mental health awareness. Our actual mission is to engage communities in mental health awareness by fusing mental illness advocacy and education through the art of dance, through events, classes, and yearly symposiums. 
So we plan to have one big symposium each year. The first one will be in Tulsa in the fall of 2022. So that will consist of dance performance by local companies and dancers, keynote speakers that are mental health professionals, some workshops and classes. You know, we're, we're kind of at the beginning of everything and just in the, in the planning process, but we wanna have a, a symposium each year in a different city um, so that we can bring this to the world. I don't see mental health as being a Tulsa issue. We see it as being a worldwide issue, especially after this past year with COVID and finally having a little bit more awareness and some more talk about mental health and mental illness and its importance. Um, but unfortunately, this is the type of thing that should have been talked about many, many years ago. It's a condition, just like any other physical condition. So we really, with the organization, are working to not only bring awareness, but more importantly, change perceptions of mental illness and why it is that people you know, don't want to come out and talk about it, ask for help. Um, and it ends in unnecessary deaths. In addition, you know, anxiety and depression are kind of the two big, you know, the two big ones that now people are talking about, but there's these other rare conditions uh, or more rare conditions, such as a schizoaffective, which is what I had, and schizophrenia. And so there's a lot of stigma that surrounds that based on the things that people say. And, you know, well, she's a paranoid schizophrenic or he's a paranoid schizophrenic, you know, he or he he shot up a school, you know, he must be mentally ill, you know, so that so that's not very helpful you know, to the stigma. So I'm curious, Debbie, what did you think when when Nina came to you with this idea, with this vision? Um, I thought it was a fabulous idea. In Oklahoma, where we live, I've had my kids in therapy uh, dealing with like, my daughter had depression and anxiety in her teenage years. It's like whenever I talk about going to therapy, though, with people around, they act as though this is something that isn't something that they would even consider doing, you know, there is a big stigma and it's not just with the rarer issues. There's a big stigma with depression. People are like, Oh, you know, I don't want to be depressed. I don't want a clinical diagnosis. I don't want, you know, I'm not depressed, you know? And the thing is, is because of that, because of this disconnection from being able to embrace and acknowledge what's going on inside of us and heal Mm-hmm. You end up suffering and, and being disconnected and isolating. And there's this almost closeted view of like, you know, hiding. Yeah. And and finding out how to be able to open that up to embrace and to to move is is such an important part of healing. Yes. If you don't look at things, you can't heal them. Right. Sapora, so I'm I'm curious first um, how you got involved. Mm-hmm. And also your perspective as a mental health practitioner, you know, dance movement therapy is a whole other field. And I personally am a registered dance movement therapist. What Debbie was just saying about the, the place of movement and art in healing. Well, I think, I mean, I look at it from kind of like several angles, right? So, I mean, just to back up a second, I got involved be- simply because a dear beloved friend of mine named Nina reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to be involved. And my immediate response was absolutely. I started dancing when I was three years old um, because back then doctors did not just dole out ADHD medications like they do nowadays as the first line of defense. Um, In the early 80s, we were told to go run around or enroll them in gymnastics or put them in dance or do something where they can really um, be uh, like in their body and kind of, you know, diffuse their high levels of energy that way. And, you know, I've just been involved in dance, you know, throughout my life. I went to college, majored in dance and theater, had a professional career for a while. And um, then when I was living in Israel as a dance artist there, um, a very dear friend of mine committed suicide. It was a very traumatic event. Um, and, uh, from that point on, I just knew that I wanted to use my skills in a, in a, just a different way. Right. And so I wanted to learn how to help others. And so I, you know, became a therapist. And, um, so there's that, you know, how I got involved. This is like 
there's nothing else I can imagine myself doing than working at the intersection of movement, therapy, mental health, embodiment, creativity, spirituality. So that's really where I'm at um, professionally and personally right now. But I think that we are a society and a culture that really rewards and encourages us to live in our heads and to intellectualize everything, right? And even when we're dealing with trauma and, and you know, there's a huge intersection, we haven't even started to talk about trauma, right? That anxiety and depression are oftentimes symptoms of trauma. Um, and that trauma is not just car accident that you were in, or um, you were a a victim at a place where there was a school shooting, trauma can be a very long-term day in, day out chronic thing that starts in childhood. And so when we look at, like, we can't solve some of these issues by just thinking about them or intellectually intellectualizing them. We have to get into our bodies Mm -hmm. um, and we have to figure it out in our bodies and we have to develop our repertoire and our language of sensation and texture and color. And and we have to look at how we integrate our experiences through a somatic lens and not just the head. And if you look like if you, if you, you know, went to a library and you go and open up a bunch of books and look at how people lived in ancient times, I mean, most likely when somebody was suffering in a community, they brought every, that they brought that person to the center of the community and either a shamanic practitioner would use artistic practices movement visualization color singing chanting music making to kind of really work on 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 helping that person to heal and i think in in our western society when somebody is ill or sick we tend to put them in a room with no windows at the end of a long hall and that's just we we can't heal in isolation right and so we have to heal in community and dance what a what a like way to kind of bring people into connection with one another yeah, and to access parts of themselves that have right. been disowned and dismissed and yeah. um, denied, right, because of the trauma of everyday life here. Mm-hmm. So movement is medicine as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. You know, as a mental health practitioner, I, I haven't really been able to figure out well, I have my own personal hypotheses, but why, um, why, healthcare institutions and insurance companies, why it's so hard to get this stuff covered by, (laughs) you know, um, and I think there's a general like fear of the body, right. In our, in our culture. I I could talk to you all about that all day, I think, but um, (laughs) I'm curious to hear about what it's like to launch an organization through COVID because that's essentially what happened and you got your 501c3 that must have been challenging huge process to to get that all to happen to get a 501c3 through a global pandemic I'd love to hear more about that it's kind of funny I kind of feel like when you just said that it made me think you know what you said about having a strong foundation I I kind of feel like that's kind of happening just as an organization of a racist stigma through dance is that you know we started this a little bit before covid but it seems like we have such a strong foundation um and it's been a year of doing some social media and you know now kind of going into planning our first symposium i feel like we have a very 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 strong foundation and so i prefer that mm-hmm. rather than kind of just jumping into something new and just kind of starting something and not really understanding you know what it is or, you know, the impact that it's going to have or be able to get that impact if we don't do it properly and um, like without ego and, you know, do it from a place of love and really wanting to help others. Does that make sense? Yeah, we we did. We changed the symposium. It was going to be in November of 2021. And we went ahead and just said, you know, we're just going to push it out a year to 2022 because, you know, we want to make sure we can implement this and, and plan it and, you know, not have, you know, a lot of these, uh, not being able to get together and uh, not knowing if it was going to be safe to, in 2021 to, to get right. together. So that social media you put out and, and you spoke a little bit about blogging about your experiences and how that 
led to founding the organization and sort of the foundation of that. I'm, I'm curious about if you could speak to a little bit more about what that is and, and responses to it, the content you put up. Towards the beginning, um, I was just doing some some quotes, some movement quotes and movement pictures, dance pictures. And then I, so very shortly after, I had been in the process of kind of writing my story out, which ended up being really long. I didn't realize how long it was, but so um, I went ahead and we went ahead and just um, started the blog. So, which is, it's actually our website, but it's in the process of forming into a website. So it's um, erasethroughdance.org. But anyway, it's a series of four blog posts that just basically, I basically just tell my whole story from beginning to kind of where I'm at now. Um, and the process was very healing um, for me to kind of put it out on paper. And then with the Instagram, um, I see movement and I see mental health and, and, and experiences so broad that um, it's hard for me to just kind of choose, you know, well, this, this Instagram is just going to be pictures and quotes, you know, it's just so broad. Movement is so broad. So to wind down, we're coming just about to the end of our time. Uh, I'd love to, for each of you to share maybe just a, a couple sentences or so about vision going forward, what you would like to see the organization become, a uh, little brevity challenge, if I may, um, okay. and what you'd like to, the impact you would like to see it have. Just continue to um, help us destigmatize this um, malignancy in our culture that mental health is not real health because mental health is very much real health. And um, and again, decreasing the number of people that continue to suffer in silence or don't feel supported or comfortable in sharing their experiences because of um, the response that, you know, the, the um, non-trauma informed responses that people give. Um, and just again, continuing to educate people how medicinal movement is and um, how absolutely life-changing and transformative it can be and supportive in, in maintaining your mental health, just developing a regular mm -hmm. movement practice, whether it's dance or yoga or Tai Chi or walking, but just how medicinal movement is for the body, mind, and soul. Well, thank you so much all for your wonderful thank you, work. Thank you, Catherine, Important so work. much. Thank you, ladies. I love you. <laughs> thank you. You've given us all important food for thought and keep going with this important mission, is all I'll say. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Vulnerable Resilience was partially sponsored by OK Let's Unpack This, a nonprofit dedicated to destigmatizing the conversations around mental health, created in part through Gibney Company's Advocacy Fellowship Program. For more information about the free resources provided, such as community support groups, free individual one on one therapy, and to join the conversation on dancer mental health, visit okokok.org. Or find us on Instagram at OK Let's Unpack This. A special shout out to our sponsor, M Seam Apparel, 
for supporting the first-person stories of dancers in every issue of our magazine. Their handmade dance wear can be found on Etsy and on Instagram at M-S-E-A-M-A-P-P-A-R-E-L. For the next segment, I'm so happy to introduce dancer and writer Misa Lusishin in long-form conversations with dancers Isla Clark and Maxi Canyon. I just want to hear you talk about your experience being an employed dancer at NDT and how this like you blossoming has affected that environment and how your relationship to that environment has evolved. I think that initially when I joined the company, of course, I was identifying as male and I really fit into the the male archetype that NDT or actually just dance companies in general I feel they kind of expect like they expect men to be amazing partners and strong and um, have like an athletic build so I kind of checked all those boxes but I felt then with of course gender dysphoria that that happened it was like a lot of it was in these dance spaces because Mm -hmm. I was often being casted in these very male roles. And of course there's uh, there's like nuance and I think there are there was already a place for more um, ambiguity in terms of gender expression. Like there were some people who were kind of always allowed to be androgynous in some way, um, but that wasn't the case for me. So I was often like the partnering boy. <laughs> yeah. Did you think those expectations were just very superficial? Like you said, how some people, for some people, they provide them with more like nuanced roles. Yeah. I think it had a lot to do with how I looked. So yeah, I do think it in that way it is totally superficial. Yeah. Um, And I think it's also what, what I, what I was in the context of everybody else. And I think also in some way I was a bit shy and in some way I was a bit, um, anxious so it was easy for me to just be like a partner or something and not take up too much space Mm -hmm. um yeah so I I do think that it was very confusing to to feel that like why is it that people always see me as this even Mm -hmm. in working with choreographers that I thought to be some people who saw me and we had conversations and they understood they understood who I was it just kind of always ended up happening and I of course it was a problem because I didn't realize at the time that I was trans. So it was like not only being a man, but, but being the most stereotypical version of that. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like when you began realizing that you were trans, that you could speak to the authority figures in the room, like the rehearsal director, the director, your peers, um, whoever, whichever choreographer you were working with at the time about um, your boundaries and how you identified and also wanted to be seen in the room? Yeah, I, I felt I could say it, but I think what I carried with me was a lot of shame and a lot of fear in expre- expressing my boundaries. And so I think I compromised a lot in the beginning and it's hard to know where that comes from like if it's just the act of being trans of course you carry with it shame and guilt um but then also how much of it is also the place that i'm in that um, what they expect of me so towards the end of last season was when i when i came up to myself but i didn't think that i could 
do it at work yet. So I, I kind of kept it to myself and kind of allowed for whatever to happen without saying anything. So I did it in a way of just like dressing more femme and presenting more femme. And I think people could see, see that a bit. And so that was just the beginning stages, but then I formally came out. And I think that especially when it comes to like partnering and being like a strong male dancer, I felt that that's how people had valued me and seen me. And so mm -hmm. I felt a lot of guilt in being like, partnering a girl in this way is really hard for me and it's really dysphoric. So I held off on that. And I just said that I'm, I'm questioning my gender identity and I uh, want to be, want to be referred to with they, them pronouns. And, mm -hmm. and then I remember having conversations with people where they were telling me to reframe how partnering was and to look at it differently and to, and that they, they, saw my strength and my vulnerability, which in their eyes meant, I see your um, both genders, I guess, even though that it also took me a little bit of time to unfold into the fact that I'm actually a trans woman. So mm -hmm. it wasn't, I used the um, stepping stone of non-binary, but I did feel, I did feel like people, people have been supporting me, but the, the thing with boundaries also has to come from me feeling comfortable enough to ask for, for them and it's hard to know where where the discomfort is coming from yeah especially in dance I know we've both been dancing for a long time since we were pretty young yeah. and there's that like complex about the authority figure at the front of the room and how much yeah. power you give that figure and how you really allow yourself to be exploited in a way but also you feel like you owe that person something like yeah, yeah you owe that person your boundaries totally and also because dance is fairly competitive there's just not that much work out there I feel like I know we both went to Arts Umbrella and the yeah. culture there is very much like you're like given out to the wolves once you graduate and if totally. you can push past and show that rigor and really not assert your boundaries and you'll be you're the friends. ones that make it <laughs> yeah I mean also there's this thing of like impermanence like you don't feel trusted enough in a space so when you're when you're given space or you're casted or whatever it is it feels like it could be taken away from you at any moment oh yeah totally so you don't feel like the things that you would normally set boundaries for are different because you're just trying to be used or you're just trying to do the thing you want to do, which is dance, but you allow people to ask things of you or project things onto you that don't really have anything to do with what you want, but because what you want is to dance and that drive is so strong, you just like forget mm -hmm. when things are uncomfortable or bad. Yeah, so vulnerable to being yeah. exploited or being projected onto. Yeah, it's like very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I mean, in dance and also like performance art and theater, there's that very valid portion of it, which is like playing a character yeah. and embodying a role. Whereas I think that line of having your boundaries crossed, that line doesn't need to be crossed. Yeah. when you're playing a role like there can be the conversation around consent or your boundaries of course to where that you can embody something that you don't necessarily identify with but do it in a way that where you feel whole yeah so just hearing you speak about how your peers and your colleagues were sort of navigating around you coming out as uh, non-binary in the beginning out to them um, while you were coming out to yourself as a trans woman yeah. um, and how they sort of legitimized it to themselves being like if you just change the way about how you're thinking about partnering yeah then you can adapt rather I'm than like very self-serving it's not mm -hmm. really about me yeah exactly it's not like how can we help you or how can we give you the ideal environment and the ideal space and how can we adapt yeah. to you I mean part of it is also like I feel as 
trans person, you're spending a lot of time educating people. And then because there's so much lack of information, then the sensitivity is also not there because if people don't know even just the straight up 101 facts about this, then it's like, how can they understand like the subtlety of when things can be triggering or like Mm -hmm. even to say like that you need to reframe this is like so objectively or just obvious for that person that they don't get the lived experience Mm -hmm. because they're like okay we'll just look at it like differently it's okay like that you should be okay with this but and of course in that moment because of my own shame I did I couldn't stand up for myself and be like no I don't want to do this (laughs) do you feel like that's changing it's been a year yeah right Um, yeah it's been a year I'm yeah. sure the shift is slow, but um, do you feel like the, your work environment is slowly shifting into a place where you feel like you can wholly be yourself? Definitely, definitely. I do think that it's changing a lot, but my fear is because this current process, it's a lot about identity and it's a lot about our individual stories or whatever, our narratives. And so in that way, it's like an easy where place to fit as a trans person in this company, because it's obviously that, and I can just be myself and not have to worry about kind of these archetype or these like dance tropes. But then my fear is that because this company has a history of being quite cis, quite heteronormative, I know that my existence in it is challenging so many things. And so I'm not sure how, like we got the seasons planning for next year and there were so many things that I couldn't be excited about because I knew that they were gendered and I knew that they were classic dance pieces also. I just don't know how my body, especially once I start to transition, if I start to transition, that it will just not, it won't fit into that. And of course there's space in like newer creations with newer choreographers. But then my, my other fear is, you know, all these people are coming in. It's like an open door of like all these different choreographers. And like, I don't know if someone's a turf. I don't know if someone mm-hmm. transphobic. And so in that way, I have to like have this strength and advocate for myself. And I know everyone's trying their best, but the, um, the issues are much deeper. Like it's not about how much people make me feel comfortable. It's that the actual system in and Mm -hmm. of itself is not built for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you were saying earlier about how you had to like perpetually educate and you didn't say this, but that just sounds like a lot of work and a lot of labor on you. And especially since you are in a fairly classical classically derived institution um that like classicism is like systemic and it's not on you to change that but I just really hope that um the authority figures and the directors at um NDT will see that there needs to be a reckoning or um they need to acknowledge that a shift is much overdue I mean, they've said all these things with words, so we'll just see how it actually manifests. But already, like, I have, like, uh, my contract is non-gendered, pretty much. And in terms of the, like, statistic of the company, that's, like, taken into consideration because they they are hiring people based off of gender. Mm-hmm. And so me and my friend Boston, we both have, like, I mean, it's not really, but it's like trans contracts. (laughs) But then I I also think like with the programming and the taste and we're just going to be there and like, Mm -hmm. I don't really have a choice. (laughs) So with the programming, that's um, like repertoire you're mentioning. Yeah. Yeah, Like new creations plus repertoire that they're. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, And I can imagine how cisgendered those roles are. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And they're great choreographers and they're amazing. But back when I was appreciating those things and, and 
aspiring to those things. Of course, what I was thought was beautiful and what I wanted to do was the like female roles, but I, I knew that wasn't possible for me. So of course I was like happy to be a part of it as a male, but yeah, it's, it's just like having to like be a trailblazer is not really, it takes a lot of effort. And I feel like right now I'm just more interested in actually developing my self mm-hmm. and like being, being seen as just a dancer in a space that can be capable of many things. It's not based off of my gender, but I'm not there yet. So I still have to think about it. And it's like how I wonder how much energy is spent justifying my existence and validating my existence in this space where that energy could be spent doing something interesting or yeah. And it's hard because I want to blame something but there's too many things to blame, actually. <laughs> yeah, for dance being such a innate, like, instinct for so many people, like movement, mm-hmm. uh, reacting to music, um, playing roles, it's so innate and natural, but for it to be so constrained with, like, classicism and, like, technique, yeah, um, it's just wild how these constraints don't allow dancers to be seen just purely as proficient and talented and beautiful movers, but also as this is the male that's going to lift the female and the female is going to have very long legs and 180 degrees of turnout. And this is the other that doesn't fit here. Yeah. And that's just so sad. But like with anything, like just there's so many layers that can be shed with time, but it, yeah, it takes time. I mean, I just, I just feel like it's out of also out of a lot of dance spaces. It's like one tier below the rigidity and the classicism of a ballet company. So already the expectations on bodies are quite strict. Or they used to be, and I now now see with Emily, like she wants to change that. Mm -hmm. But these things are embedded, like when you're trained in ballet or you have like aspiration for someone to be a technical body, it's most commonly Eurocentric, white, skinny bodies. Mm -hmm. And I'm noticing now, of course, like feeling like walking into my womanhood and like being comfortable with my femininity I'm now comparing myself to the women that I'm surrounded by all day long. And I see a common thread that they all have this, uh, like within the same range of body type. And mm-hmm. it's very hard. And I'm now, ex- I mean, I always, always had a hard time with my body, but now being in, in the, the world of expectations of women, uh, women in dance. I'm. It's it's really hard. It's terrible. I'm like just applauding all the women I know that have had to endure that mm-hmm. for years. But then there's also like you know underlying things that go on that are still taboo also within the institutions. Yeah, or just within like dance in general, like the that actually an athletic body is not really or like the dancer body is not always expected to be healthy yeah yeah I've been seeing that challenge or I mean I live in New York and I dance in New York so I'm really not around like strict classical companies besides of course the ballet institutions that exist in the city but like in terms of like contemporary ballet work I'm not really surrounded by any of those institutions right now. Um, And I mean, at Arts Umbrella where we did go to school, it was fairly, fairly diverse, but there was definitely an ideal and that ideal was set by say like Ballet PC and then a tier higher um, uh, NDT. And it was very obvious that there was an ideal that was set above us that we should strive for. I mean, even um, to the point that if you don't have that body type or you aren't that race, you won't even audition for the place. They won't mm-hmm. even consider it. Yeah, they're like, 
you can try, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's so many limits, like unspoken limits. Yeah. Yeah. In dance. And there's a lot to unpack as well with those, um, especially with how they're perpetuated by authority figures in dance yeah. and mentors where they look at you and they're like, well, you're good, but you just don't have that or you're not going to belong here. So you shouldn't even try, or I think you'll fit in here. Yeah. Like there shouldn't be a set place for me. The only, I should just be qualified based on my ability yeah. rather than my physical structure and my genetics. Yeah. Man, that is also so hard now because I feel they're like, we've been having conversations and I think a lot of like institutions are having these conversations about inclusion and diversity. And then it's like, how do you then protect it from going the opposite way where then, or actually it's the same thing. It's like looking for a body based off of like a preconceived notion, like, okay, you want more dancers of color. And then you're going to like look for that and tokenize them instead mm-hmm. of just like seeing a, seeing a body and aspiring to have a more diverse diverse group of people yeah it's very like it's very hard because also with a big company you have to be like replaceable like there has to be like a second cast third cast Mm -hmm. yeah so even when you're in these institutions and even when you have a job you're still rendered disposable at times yeah yeah. yeah. I feel like whenever I talk about dance, it always devolves with another dancer, it always devolves into like um just like negativity. Yeah. <laughs> Being like the system is so fucked. I know. <laughs> but but underlying all this is like this belief and like are both of us like wanting to advocate for what yeah. dance can be yeah exactly because you feel it like you also know that because it's so much about uh, the body and the body is inherently political and like the art making is like a means to change and it's a beautiful thing it's like dance as a medium has the potential to be even more effective because it does use the body and because it does use the people that are involved in it in such an intimate way mm-hmm. And like, I want to believe that a place like NDT, otherwise I wouldn't, I would have left too, Mm -hmm. you know, like I do want to believe that a place like NDT, which has such a great influence and like, they're working with these, this tier of choreographers that are like involved in this high art world or like are deemed um, like world-class artists, whatever that means, that they can also change and see that I don't know, like, I hope that me being in the space in those rehearsals will force people to look at gender differently in the same way that, like, having a disabled person would make them think about how to restructure their idea of choreography and, you know, like, just being this kind of catalyst. But then with that comes, of course, like, you just get tired, I feel. I mean, I already feel tired, like, really burnt out yeah 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 I'm sorry I feel like at the bottom of all of this is that institutions need to become dynamic yeah they need to learn to adapt totally um yeah Yeah. and to not become complacent and find a system that works mm -hmm. yeah and to constantly be reassessing yeah and I really hope that NDT is a because they already have such a wide influence. I hope they really provide a good example for the rest of the contemporary dance world. Yeah. And since their dancers are so young and they're looking at new talent every single year, multiple times a year, I really yeah. hope that they take that responsibility. Yeah. And like adapt that like dynamic company model. Yeah. I mean, I think that with the way that people have come up with ideas and the way that we're talking about these things is with way more urgency than it would have 
had it not been this time of the world, I think, like the urgency to change the model, the urgency to like bring in different types of training or like voices or it is urgent. And I feel like, of course, with any big institution, these changes are like so slow, but mm -hmm. the competitions are happening. So I was going to ask the question of what an equitable dance space would be for you, but it sounds like it would be where you are if they adapted and if they changed. Yeah. Um, but what what is an equitable dance space for you? Where conversation isn't one-sided and that it's a place where the um, your body isn't just a vessel, but like a a conduit towards something bigger, like also a place where every facet of your identity, um, every part of your being is taken into consideration. So I guess that's sensitivity and um, somehow a place where dancers feel empowered to speak. This is mm -hmm. a lot of speaking and I don't think that there's enough talking and addressing issues that are taboo because I often think about this question, like I have so many things that I, I don't like or that make me feel uncomfortable. And then I try and think about what the most ideal situation is or the most, um, what I fantasize about. And it's so hard to know what it is, but I guess those things I said. Mm -hmm. A space where conversation is nurtured. Yeah. And welcomed. Yeah. Yeah, dancers need to be empowered. Yeah. From a young age. And when you can just like rave if you want. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> like going to school, like an assignment is to like go to a club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also where your mental health is taken into consideration too. I feel like there's a lot of like, leave your emotions at the door. Like old yeah. things like from so long ago. And like you figure it out you like work it out through dancing. And it's like, that's very ableist because sometimes depression is so bad. Like you mm -hmm. can't even do that. And it's like your physical body that you're bringing to work every day. And I've, I've been ashamed sometimes to, I mean, it's always been okay. Like there have been times where I've been like, sorry, I have to leave, I'm really depressed. And it's always been okay. But then the shame if going to say that or mm -hmm. is yeah. there. And yeah. where, where does that come from? Mm -hmm. yeah the whole culture of leave your baggage or leave your anything at the door and just enter as a body yeah. is very real yeah. um, and also perpetuates that disembodiment yeah and if we're to be considered as artists you shouldn't separate those parts from yourself exactly you should yeah. allow them to inform your work yeah yeah I really like what you said earlier about that I don't know really where this conversation can go. I just feel self-conscious because I'm recording. I know, I'm like, just feel like I have to be like, um, very, what's the word? Like, so I don't get fired. What's the word? <laughs> Scrutinize? <laughs> no, no, no. Like where you be, try to be like very clean with how you say things. So oh, don't... yeah, I, I get that. Like really, um, like not polished, but there's like yeah, what it doesn't start with an R. I don't know. My brain is literally a, <laughs> like a, a puddle right now. <laughs>
how they shouldn't have to do specific roles because of how they feel or mm-hmm. like how they identify. I yeah, think like that cynicism like came in to like wanting so badly to be a part of something that I knew I that I love and I want to be a part of. Ultimately, coming down to being like, I love dancing. I love everything about it, but why do I have to also navigate these social issues, these these like exclusionary actions that people have that are subconscious or conscious? And why should other people have to deal with this? The body is just inherently political. Mm-hmm. And I feel like at times the art, I don't know how our other art worlds work, but this dance specifically I just saw this kind of fabricated myth <laughs> that it's like some kind of politically free space that it's something where you can abstract enough to where those aren't factors anymore yeah no that's comes from a very privileged standpoint of course and then my cynicism in that came from it replicating or like it mirroring pretty conservative behaviors and and systems and yeah. was always seen as some kind of like this is the artful utopia like we don't we don't think about those things we love everybody and it's like well, your actions don't show that yeah i feel like you're one of the few dancers that i know that is constantly very critical of dance environments and whatever institutions you're working under or within and i definitely wasn't introduced to this type of criticism or like critical lens before moving to New York and then upon moving to New York, it did take me a while to like find a group or like a community that was critical as well as fully committed to dance and the pursuit of it. What has the audition experience been like for you in New York? So most of the time I'll go into an audition really wanting that job, but this isn't the best mindset or it's not a good mindset at all, but it was just like, I'm probably not going to get it. (laughs) And for a reason or for a multitude of reasons. And some of them have been because of how I look be like, I'm not, you know, and where I come from, I'm not from these prestigious schools in New York city. I'm black. (laughs) I don't dance in a traditionally male or like what would I don't even know what that would be it's kind of stupid like that masculine role because those and I mean things have changed of course where people are more aware of people's gender identities and treating and not being arbitrary about what they're looking for but you know if I go to a if I was going to a male audition they're probably looking for somebody who's gonna I mean the perception I get from that is that they're looking for somebody who's gonna fill out a male role Mm -hmm. being a man (laughs) being somebody who lifts and you know do all these things that they think are only that are so binary and so like only men do this part and you know again it's arbitrary it's messy you know going into the spaces being like i'm probably not gonna get hired for this i don't fit the criteria in a societal lens again it could have been me presuming like what it was gonna be like but also there was nothing that proved me wrong because then you also you see who gets hired and you're like okay you just hired another you know yeah white white man there's Mm -hmm. only or it would be situations where you're like okay there's only this company has held one black person for every year that they've been around Mm -hmm. and there can't there's like that idea there can't be two of us (laughs) you know and then you're like you gotta wait you're like okay gotta wait till that one black that one like black dancer leaves so i can like you know fill in that role shitty mindsets that you get but based off of really horrible like actual realities that you're seeing if you don't have like certain people in your room, that kind of should, should send you a message that you haven't been open to those types of people. Where their hiring decisions weren't dictated by this like, oh no, we need to fulfill a quota, but we can't have too many people of color. We can't have too many black folk. So just to like change gears, when have you felt like your identity was respected and advocated for in either like a dance space, a job? Or a process. When I worked with Una, there was such things as learning how to... I came in and I just immediately kind of... Or no, I gave my bio. And I was using they pronouns for everything. And mm-hmm. Chuck caught it right away. And he's like, hey, just wanted to ask you. I see that I noticed that you use those pronouns. Like, how do you want to be referred to in rehearsals and everything? And I was like, wow, I've never had somebody ask me that. 
just based off my bio. I didn't say anything. It was just my bio. Mm-hmm. And that felt really, that instantly made me feel like, oh, I'm in a really safe space. I can be taken care of. And then also he's had a long history of working with a very diverse group of people all the time. And also being a queer person and just the demeanor of the group in general. It was just like, wow, this is a really safe space to be in. And um, also there's a very collaborative environment in the space too. And we always had discussions about things that could make people uncomfortable when it comes to work or, you know, that type of thing. Always having discussions around mental health. That is just a really good space for that. Being in a space that is safe, we're having these discussions and it's not like just for the, just because you feel you have to have those conversations. We genuinely want everybody to feel safe and taken care of. Mm -hmm. Let's talk. Yeah. And it's not like issues came up about that. It's just... the space was set up to take care of each other. And then that happened with another group that I was in, uh, Birdhouse, where it's like, again, we're all close friends. We're all around the same age, but we also understand Raven did a really great job facilitating a safe space as well. I think even then, we were always having discussions like about what we're doing, character work. There came up conversations about nudity and how we should talk about it. How do we feel about doing this? What does it do for the work? What is, how does it, the idea of consent about doing mm-hmm. it? And that's where I kind of realized, I was like, wow, all companies should be doing these things. I know. It um, and actually kind of surprised that other companies didn't do those things. Or just surprised because I just got lucky and falling into spaces where that was a priority. Yeah. Having safe spaces discussing about work it you didn't just come in and learn steps and Mm -hmm. then put some dance together and were obligated to just do whatever the choreographer said yeah and this like plays into what you mentioned earlier about dismantling the objectification of dancers Mm -hmm. and how they're just things to mold in a dance space they're just objects to follow the director's mm-hmm. like orders, choreographers' um, directions, and not valuing these dancers as whole artistic collaborators. I was just going to go off of what you were saying. All these groups, what they had in common was that I never felt like a dancer. I felt like I am an artist in this. Maybe that's not the right word, but I just felt like a like I was my own entity in a space working with somebody to create their vision, to help them create their vision. I didn't Mm. feel like it it didn't feel like there was a hierarchy, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm just as much of an artist and my voice is really important in this space. And if I want to speak up about something that is fully available, we just have that agency to continue working and like collaborating and doing stuff. (laughs) And then they'll come back and then they'll rejoin and they'll be like, okay, like we kind of figured out like, we found a middle ground of like what we feel and let's let's share that and I don't know it's just, it was just so it felt like independent artists coming together but under one person's vision seems like everyone was being respected and treated as exactly. a whole collaborator and artistic voice in the room yeah. rather than just silent I don't know bodies zoom out zoom out That concludes the third chapter of Vulnerable Resilience. Before we go, I'd like to share some essential mental health resources that are available 24-7 for anyone across the country, anyone who might be in need of support. We'll also have links in our chapter notes. Crisis text line, text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741 for free crisis counseling, or call the National Helpline 1-800-662-4357. Thanks, Leo. And thanks to all the contributors sharing in this chapter. Catherine Boland, Nina Matson puckett Sipor Gerson-Miller, Debbie Smith-Berlin, 
Misa Kino Lucician, Isla Clark, and Maxi Canyon. Our sound score was created by Morgan Barbara Williams, and this chapter's sound mixing was done by Stephanie Wolf, producer of DIY Dancer's Unsequenced podcast, along with contributing audio editor Justin Epstein from RYBG. Our cover art was created by Tess Jenkins with creative direction and graphic design from Laura Wilson and Celine Kiner. Vulnerable Resilience is produced by DIY Dancer with editorial direction by Candace Thompson in partnership with OK Let's Unpack This, a nonprofit dedicated to destigmatizing the conversation around dancer mental health created in part through Give Me Company's Advocacy Fellowship Program. In our next chapter, we'll spend time with Marissa Martin while she facilitates a breath break, followed by a messy talk, facilitated by Whistle While You Work, an online platform devoted to reporting sexual harassment and discrimination in the dance and performance world, featuring Aaliyah Baker, Jay Bowie, Chanel Da Silva, Michael John Harper, and Gabrielle Silvato. I'm Leo Zielinska. And I'm Courtney Henry. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week.